I'm going to be talking about, uh, really probably much more about uh, the legal aspect of uh, rights of access to the benefits of science and the history of these rights. Uh, and I'm very much relying on you uh, as philosophers uh, to, to query and take me through you know, what I've said at the end about what I think are the underlying moral foundations of these rights. Um, this talk really relates to work which is ongoing uh, on a book for which I have a contract with Johns Hopkins University Press. And the book is specifically on rights of access to science, human rights, property rights, and new technologies and new biotechnologies. So this is part of this work. Uh, and what I'm hoping to do uh, tonight is to tell you why it is important to look at these rights, uh, specifically in relation to emerging biotechnologies, uh, to take you through what I found uh, when I did the historical research, which I thought was really surprising and interesting, and I, I think you will find that too, I hope, uh, and then to uh, try and begin to identify some of the uh, underlying moral values behind these rights. So, uh, let me just show you the text to begin with. Uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, which was adopted by the United Nations in 1948, contains an article, little known, little studied, uh, Article 27, which states that everyone has the right to freely participate in the cultural life of the community, to enjoy the, the arts, and to share in scientific advancement and its benefits. But then it also has, uh, it also states, somewhat surprisingly, uh, that everyone has the right to the protection of the moral and material interests resulting from any scientific, literary, or artistic production of which is the author. And I'll just straight away, I think everyone can see, there seems to be a tension here between public rights of access uh, and uh, rights of in, in individuals, um, which in fact um, was recognized straight away, I must say, uh, and prompted uh, nevertheless some commentators to wonder whether the drafters of the declaration had somehow overseen or failed to uh, pay attention to this potential contrast and uh, tension here. Uh, and I will uh, show to you that they didn't. Uh, now, the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights is actually a treaty, a legally binding treaty, unlike the Universal Declaration. Uh, it was adopted uh, almost 15 years after the declaration. What happened is that the rights contained in the declaration were originally both political and social and economic rights. Um, they were intended to uh, result in, economic, in legally binding treaties. Uh, what in fact happened was that the social and economic cultural rights were split from the political and civil rights, and the right to access the benefits of scientific progress was then included into Article 15, uh, which again repeats the same uh, point about uh, in Article 15.1c that the benefit from the protection of moral material interests resulting from any scientific, literary, or artistic production of which the, is the author have to be protected by member states. Now, both these rights the sacred text that they are, you know, uh, you know, we're left uh, very much uh, um, without, well, we're, we're left unstudied, really, until fairly recently, when the adoption of the 
TRIPS agreement prompted a resurgence of interest in Article 27 and Article 15. And the reason why is because the TRIPS, relay, the TRIPS agreement imposes or requires of all members of the WTO that they adopt some minimum standards of protection of intellectual property. And of course, at the time this agreement was being negotiated, there were many countries around the world, many developing countries, uh, about 40 altogether, which did not have any IP standards. So they were producing generic versions of pharmaceuticals which had been developed uh, in and commercialized in the developed world, uh, but they hadn't patented <laughs> them. So this prompted, uh, not surprisingly, considerable um, acrimony over the role of TRIPS, uh, the relationship between intellectual property rights and human rights, the question of whether uh, intellectual property rights are human rights, <laughs> and whether the relative priority of trade rights over human rights is. So there's been considerable work done on this aspect of Article or the extent to which Article 27, UDHR, and Article 15, ICSCR, uh, by Tantu TRIPS, the TRIPS agreement. Um, the work has been done by, not just by academic commentators, and there's a large volume on this, but by UN agencies, many of them, uh, not just the UN, WHO, UNESCO, they've all got into producing their own commentaries, guidelines, not necessarily all, uh, at, you know, uh, in tune with each other. So that's one area which, in which uh, the scope of application, the meaning of rights of access to science has actually made a resurgence fairly recently. And the other is the IIIS program uh, on Article 15. Um, it's part of the a program which the IIIS, the American Society for the Advancement of Science, uh, has on uh, science uh, and human rights. Uh, this program set up a coalition back in 2008 uh, which then picked up Article 15 ICSCR uh, as an umbrella from we, uh, for work which the AAAS has pursued uh, relating <coughs> to the interface, intersection between science and human rights uh, with a view to engaging particularly scientists, the AAAS has got over 300 scientific professional associations affiliated, uh, engaging these scientists uh, to think about how they could, their work could contribute to human rights and conversely how human rights could shape you know, science. Uh, and I can tell you, you know, one of the most inspiring lectures I've heard for, uh, for a long time was at the inaugural uh, meeting of this coalition back in 2008 from Mary Robinson, who is former commissioner at the UN, a uh, great advocate you know, for work to be done in this area. Really inspiring. And in fact, it was actually my involvement at the AAAS which prompted the book, really, because uh, it's then that I realized I'm actually part of one of their committees on science, ethics, and human rights. I then realized, because I was working in parallel on international bioethics instruments that there hadn't really been 
much thinking about how these articles could potentially relate to uh, the human rights uh, instruments which had been developed in, uh, in the Paolo area uh, and more generally um, on, you know, related to developments in the biosciences, hence the book. Now, uh, there are two ways in which I think there's something, <laughs> the reason why the, the new biosciences and biologies raise distinctive questions which are really interesting for, from the perspective of understanding the scope of application of Article 27 and 15. One of them is that, of course, you know, uh, historically, uh, we all know, you know the nature of inventions, uh, certainly in a few past centuries, was tied in with the Industrial Revolution uh, and you know, the kind of thought that comes readily to mind when talking about inventions is of the machines of the Industrial Revolution, including you know, the steam engine and others. Well, of course, uh, the nature of invention in the 20th century, particularly the latter part of the 20th century in biology, has dramatically changed because what we have now is this monumental you know, uh, achievement, really, of the sequencing of the human genome. Uh, the, before that, the discovery of DNA. Uh, you know, all this... Uh, really uh, cutting-edge work which is being done, which involves computer modeling of cells and their functions, uh, all these things which are now patentable, they have been for a while. In the United States there are 16,000 gene patents uh, and they're considered in law as inventions. Uh, so uh, the nature of invention has changed considerably uh, and you know, this uh, in turn means that the type of knowledge that is being generated in the biosciences or what is an invention, what is considered to be an invention at least in law, uh, actually very much relates to basic foundational knowledge rather than the products of such knowledge, i.e. the therapeutic applications, the regenerative therapies, the medicines that at this point in time uh, are still very much downstream uh, that we hope you know, will be found, but we are considerably, uh, well, we have some time to wait. Yeah? So that's one way in which uh, the, you know, the biosciences, the work that's being done in the biosciences, is actually quite different from uh, the kind of issues that arise in relation to the patenting of pharmaceutical products, for instance, in the developing world. Um, so then, you, you, know, you would, you know, one of the questions, for instance, to ask out of this is, does Article 27.2 or 15.C uh, require that uh, Craig Venter could claim as a fundamental human right that he should be able to, or he should have been able to patent the human genome? You know, is that the implication of 15.C or of 27.2? And, you know, the same applies to other foundational patents. For instance, uh, the Wharf patent, the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, uh, which is held by Wharf, but uh, the inventor was Jimmy Thompson, who derived uh, the embryonic human stem cells. Uh, you know, can he claim a fundamental right to uh, over this, uh, over these inventions, inverted commas? Um, so that's one set of questions which specifically relate to 
vowel sciences. And then another question, which is quite important in the light of uh, the rise of the new human rights instruments uh, on bioethics and biomedicine, and that includes the Human Genome Declaration, uh, for instance, the, human, uh, the Universal Declaration on Bioethics, uh, the Council of Europe's Convention on Human Rights and Biomedicine, uh, and this statement, for instance, which uh, was produced by an expert meeting, which was hosted by UNESCO, um, specifically on Article 15C. Uh, all, a lot of these instruments, whilst welcoming advances, scientific advance, also talk about concerns about misuse of the science. And you have here in this <coughs> statement by UNESCO that yes, you know, the normative content of this article should be directed to <coughs> facilitating, enabling participatory uh, environment, uh, non-discriminatory access, blah, 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 and protection from abuse and adverse effects of science and its applications. And examples cited are stem cells, cloning, in nanotechnologies, etc. So one of the questions I am interested in is actually finding out <laughs> to what extent uh, if we now project forward from 48 or 66 to 2010 or 11 or 12 as we are now, um, uh, to what extent these articles require to be interpreted differently uh, uh, and uh, require the building of ethical limits which uh, would then constrain access to uh, the biosciences or the benefits of such knowledge. Okay, so I'm not going to take you through uh, what I discovered when I started looking at the history of the Article 27. Particularly, this is actually the focus of this, and something I had a lot of fun doing last summer um, when the Brochet Foundation paid for me to, to get to Geneva and I stayed there and I went to the UN and I found there was a law librarian there who was very lonely and absolutely thrilled to have someone who could actually ask her to find all these dusty documents uh, from shelves. Uh, so I had a great time and great help. Uh, before that, I looked at um, Article 27, all the drafting documentation um, which is actually being digitalized so it's posted on the UN website uh, and you can go to it as I did during my research leave and at some point send yourself to sleep because it is really quite voluminous and not at all Google friendly in that uh, what the UN has done is photographing the actual original documents which were manually typed on mechanical typewriters in 1948, so are not searchable, really. <laughs> and then it's actually filed them in its systems uh, in chronological order. So if you're trying to find what happened when, uh, and there were many, over 300 meetings of various committees relating to the drafting of the declaration, <coughs> and I knew just spend hours, as I did, going through each single one of these documents to see whether, you know, what's a morsel of light you could get from this. Um, I mean, I wasn't completely uh, there pioneering because the person who's really done uh, the, the definitive you know, history of the uh, Universal Declaration is an American political scientist, philosopher called Jonas Morsink. 
uh, and he did all this kind of work, but in relation to the whole declaration, so there isn't a lot on Article 27 there in his book. Uh, and then there's a few commentaries, but essentially they're relying on Morsink as well. So, uh, what I found when I went back to all this document documentation was very interesting. To begin with, it was very clear that from the beginning, delegates had actually noticed that there was a tension potentially between public rights of access and the individual, the protection of individual rights of authors or, or um, inventors. Um, and you can see, for instance, the Chilean delegate here saying the state has the duty to encourage the development of the arts and sciences, but it must see to it that the laws for the protection of trademarks, patents, and copyrights are not used for the establishment of monopolies which might prevent all persons from sharing the benefits of science. So you can see from the beginning there were concerns that if one inserted individual rights of authorship in that article. Potentially this would cut across public rights of access to science, to knowledge, to the arts. I then assumed, and I would imagine you would have assumed that too, and maybe it's because having too much baggage in philosophy, uh, that the insertion of Article 27.2 on the individual rights had actually been driven and taken up primarily by liberal market economies. So I assumed it was the US and the UK which had pushed for Article 27.2. And I had assumed, as well, incorrectly as it turned out, that it was the socialist countries which would have resisted it. Well, I was completely wrong, uh, completely wrong. In fact, what happened is that these liberal market economies as I said, I had assumed wrongly that they had, were, they, would be press, they had been the ones pressing for inventors' rights, or rights of authorship, and the socialist countries had been opposed. What happened was exactly the opposite. Unbelievably so. Uh, so it was very surprising and very interesting. What happened was that the UK and the US primarily uh, argued that uh, IP rights are a species of legal rights. They are not fundamental human rights. They also argued that IP rights are not universal. They're actually only uh, attached to inventors or authors or others. They then also argued that IP rights uh, or the basis justification of IP rights and patents is their social or economic value, utility. Uh, so all this and all these, you know, points that were made, particularly right at the end of uh, the commissions, in the third meetings of the commission, uh, were all to the effect that IP rights should not be, well, that what was being proposed in Article 27.2 was the inclusion of IP rights, the protection of IP rights, that those are not fundamental human rights, <laughs> and that therefore they shouldn't be included in that declaration or even part of it. And I will ask myself why, you know, how come? Uh, so part of what I've done in much more detail that I can go into here for the purposes of this talk, because we will all be asleep if I do that anyway, is to actually try and think through why it is that UK-US were actually arguing in that way. And what I've said in the paper that's been circulated is that essentially it's a combination of factors relating to, on the one hand, 
the positivistic, the positivistic uh, general kind of British attitude to rights. Uh, you find that in a lot of the comments. You know, there are such things that you know, there's a lot of resistance to the idea uh, that right, there are any such things as fundamental human rights other than legal rights. And so that's captured in Jeremy Bentham, but it also goes in with ideas of or the culture uh, of legal culture on patents in Britain and the US, which was utilitarian. You know, patents had been thought of in Britain, in the UK and the US always as evil monopolies, as you know, things that one had to have in a society in order to create innovation, in order to create social utility, but fundamentally, you know, they were a means to an end, uh, to an economic end. And you find, for instance, in comments of Adam Smith, you know, Adam Smith's praising patents as the only harmless monopolies because it was the market rather than the government that determined the inventor's compensation. For if the invention be good, he says, and such as is profitable to mankind, he will probably make a fortune of it. Uh, but if it's of no value, he will reap no benefit. So you have a combination of factors here. Utilitarian, you know, general kind of perspective on patterns, uh, positivist philosophy on rights, uh, coming together, legal conceptions of property rights, coming together to militate against the inclusion of IP rights in a universal declaration on human rights. But now conversely, which was really surprising, I found, <laughs> it was actually the socialist countries which pressed for this article. I couldn't believe it. It was actually it was so bizarre. It was Mexico and Cuba, of all countries, <laughs> which actually insisted to the bitter end that Article 27.2 should be included there. Uh, and they were doing that partly in concert with the chair of the drafting committee, Professor Cassin, who is French. And those of you who know a bit about IP law will recognize that the language of moral and material interests come from copyright law. And Professor Cassin had been involved in the Berner Convention, uh, which uh, had been adopted in Bogota, just at more or less at the same time at this declaration. And the French had ha had this idea, uh, which uh, in fact nobody else in the non-continental kind of world agreed with. And to this day, the U.S. doesn't, you know, recognize moral and material interest. But they had had this idea for several centuries that moral and that authors and inventors have moral and material interests. And so they pushed for this. So Professor Kassan pushed for this, and the South American socialist countries pushed for it too. And it was them, really, you know, who actually clinched the vote, because there were more of them than uh, enough of them to clinch the vote. So why, you know, why, other than, you know, the historical involvement of Kassan? Well, you know, this idea that authors or inventors have moral and material interests, uh, which are a form of reward for creativity in some ways ties in with a very different culture in France, which was much more a natural uh, rights culture, going back to Locke, that's where that kind of uh, idea has its roots. So that in copyright, in French copyright law, uh, 
this uh, author's rights are thought of being seen as fundamental natural rights, and they're tied into in our Lockean theories of the, the labour of his body, of their body and work, uh, and as such, someone who produces uh, a work of art, science, is entitled to the products, you know, to the material and moral in, uh, uh, interest from this, as, ma- as a material and moral interest in the works. So you've got that explains to some extent the French input into this. Uh, what it doesn't actually explain very clearly is why the socialist countries thought that it'd be such a good idea to have to recognize the rights of authors and inventors. And what they said about that, you can see in there, it's in the interest of humanity as a whole that artistic and scientific creation should be rightly attributed to their authors. You know, it would be society as a whole would suffer if works of art and other works were actually parodied or in some ways uh, mis- misused. Uh, there's also the idea that uh, intellectual works are fundamental to social progress. That was one of the points that they made as well. And uh, there were concerns that, I mean, there were other arguments like artists and uh, are generally very poorly p- paid, which is true. Otherwise, I would be an artist now. Uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, and so we need to reward people who you know, are actually producing all these wonderful creative works. Um, so there's a whole series of reasons. What I think, and I don't know, I'm just speculating now <laughs> uh, completely because I, I don't know enough about the political history of socialist countries in South America, to what extent they were drawing in their socialist uh, ideas on works like Marx's, but I think potentially, presumably, you could read into, or they must have, you know, at least it's consistent to think of their socialist ideals as resting on or going back to something like a Marxian view of human nature of the kind you find described in Marx's economic and philosophical manuscripts, whereby the idea is that Capitalist societies create this alienation uh, of man or human beings from their work uh, by separating the products of people's works from the actual uh, the ownership of them from uh, the, the person who who does them. And so, you, I think, I think it's you know, if you buy into that idea, as Marx himself said you can see, well, unlike other animals who build nests or dwellings purely to satisfy a physical need, man also forms things in accordance with the laws of beauty, duplicates himself not only as in consciousness, intellectually, but also actively, in reality, and therefore he contemplates himself in a world that he has created. And that comes from the philosophical and economic manuscripts. I've got the quotes um, in, in the paper. So I think you could actually potentially, or at least it's consistent you know, with socialist ideas, to read into those ideals uh, a view of human nature that thinks of human beings as essentially creative, and the potential to uh, have uh, creative impulses, which uh, it is important to uh, satisfy. So then, where would that Take us in terms of where does that take us in terms of underlying ideas uh, of 
what's the moral foundations of this Article 27s are. Well, I think, and you can then you know, kind of ponder on this and tell me I'm completely wrong, the right to access the benefit, and not benefits, the benefits of scientific progress in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is directed to the protection of universal human traits or capabilities for learning, self-expression, creativity, which will be stifled uh, or will stifle human development if they're not met. That the right is connected to the transformative role of knowledge in human development and human flourishing. That the realization of the right requires freedom of expression and thought and freedom from political or religious interference. I haven't actually shown that here today, but it's part of some other work that's, you know, that I've done in relation to this article. And it's actually extremely evident in the um, debates that the delegates had, discussions in, rela uh, in relation to the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Right, where this was a very, very strong recurrent theme. Um, and that the right doesn't prescribe any particular form of legal protection, certainly not intellectual property rights, uh, as a form of legal protection. So IP rights, intellectual property rights patents, are not fundamental human rights. Um, now, that then leaves me with the question of considering whether ethical, they, there are any ethical constraints on science which should limit freedom of research and rights of access to the benefits of science. And that's actually one of the things I'm working on at the moment and I will, I will do next. But going back to that Venice statement, you can see that this is an important issue very much uh, relating to new biotechnologies. Now, I just want to conclude with Venice, uh, my painting, but this is a conclusion then uh, of the, what I've drawn so far, that you can, when you look at Article 27, it's true that delegations across the political divide were prompted by a wide variety of motives to uh, and rationals to support or reject the inclusion of individual rights of authorship in Article 27. But I think it's also possible to discern some important areas of convergence um, and divergence in the underlying philosophies uh, which activated the debates. Now, the I think the important conclusion to be drawn from the historical excursion into the history of this article uh, is relevant for modern debates. The convergence, you know, there is a convergence of sorts here between different political ideologies, uh, liberal and socialist, uh, on the rational forwards of authorship. Um, in both cases, I think, uh, the rational lies in the personal creative you know, uh, abilities and capacities of individual human beings. And as such, the rights in question, qua human rights, are of an intrinsic, per, intrinsically personal character. 
They attach to persons, you know, they attach universally. They do not attach to corporations um, or commercial entities or other legal entities either because they are about self-development, the self-development of the human person. So they can only be claimed by individual human beings, not commercial entities, not legal entities. And what this study does as well is also lend further support to a conclusion which was reached separately, precisely this conclusion, by uh, one of the UN, the UN committee, which is uh, uh, charged with the interpretation of this, uh, of, the, of the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, which also reported in a comment in 2005 that the rights which are protected by Article 27.2 are not coextensive with intellectual property rights. <coughs> Although IP rights and patent laws could certainly, potentially, be deployed as tools to secure protection of the personal human rights encompassed by Article 27.2. And it's a very interesting work by um, an American IP lawyer called Lawrence Helfer, uh, who's actually really the main uh, authority on human rights and IP rights. He's based at Dukes, who actually thinks, now has begun to think around, around the lines of... Uh, how IP rights could actually be used as tools to promote human rights. Very interesting word. So furthermore, a central concern expressed by both supporters and objectors of Article 27.2 was that the protection of the individual rights of scientists and authors should not cut across the public good of facilitating access to knowledge. That was quite an important recurrent theme in the debates. Um, so, whether for liberal or communitarian reasons. <laughs> uh, so, either way, the underlying rationale for Article 27.2 lends little support for the view that intellectual property rights are fundamental human rights, although the modalities of national and international IP laws and patent laws may, and indeed, certainly should be <coughs> deployed in the service of human rights. 